In banking, it's in the good times that you have to behave and it's hard to behave because everybody's growing so fast and you have to have the courage to be like, no, we're not going to do that. And the thing that allows them to do that is being steeled by experiences of tragedy and hardship. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my Great to Wealth listeners. Today, I have someone on the show that is probably the most qualified person to talk about a topic that we've all been listening in news a lot more, which is banking. The person that I brought on board for that is John Maxfield. John, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great. I love the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thank you. As I was telling John just before we went on there, I have a feeling that we're going to be talking for two, three hours. So I'll have to make sure I stay in the, within the control lines that I establish myself and respect everyone's time. So John, a little bit about you, man. What really excited me about your background when we were looking for the right guest is somebody who is not making the opinions just by reading news, right? And I know you have deep relationships with a lot of bankers, like the top bankers. You've studied them. You understand banking. You understand the crisis. You have looked at the history and you have come to your own opinions, which is what I really liked. You're not an insider, but you're an insider, but have a very unique objective perspective. So thank you again for being on the show. With that, the way we usually open up our show, John, is about tell us your migration story into how you got to do what you get to do. I'm sure growing up, you didn't want to become the Max John you are today. You probably wanted something else. Or maybe you did. I don't know. That would be a good perspective to learn about what got you to do what you're doing. Okay, it's a great question. I'll try to make this brief because it's not that interesting. I grew up in an agricultural family. And agricultural families, is a successful agricultural family. We had a large operation. And in a situation like that, you get to know your banker really well. And you typically are investors in banks, mm-hmm. uh, local kind of ag banks. And so I've grown up around banking. When I was 16 years old, I was in a car accident, but it was just right any old regular old car accident. It was like I was driving a Suburban in the middle of the night home from Denver, Colorado. By that point, we had moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado, down to Colorado Springs, about an hour south. And it is February and it was like 1.30 in the morning. I was at a concert with my buddy, Adam, and two other guys, my two other best friends that were in a different car and we're coming down the interstate. And we hit a patch of black ice. We're not speeding or anything like that. Go out of control, get the car, the, the suburban tumbles, gets caught upside down. My friend Adam, my ex-friend Adam, <laughs> <just joking>. <laughs> <laughs> but I was stuck. I was stuck in the car because it was Ooh. crushed down. And he like kicked his way out and he left. <laughs> like, he literally left. <laughs> and he's this older couple, with actually brother and sister. They were coming home from Family of the Opera, and he was in a tux and she was in a gown. They pulled over to stop to help us. And so wow. that guy comes in, he crawls into the Suburban, he cuts me out, pulls me out. We're walking back to their car. They're going to give us a ride to the next town where we can call my parents, let them know what happened. And I realized that my girlfriend's cell phone was in my car. She had let me borrow her cell phone. Hmm. Well, this is 1996. So like that means that it was her parents' cell phone. Right. Remember the 90s? You know right. What I mean? right. So I said, well, I don't want to get her in trouble because like <clears throat> they didn't borrow her phone. So I got to go get her phone first. So I was went back to the suburban, was crawling around. It's not easy to find things in one of those when they're upside down at nighttime. And they make cell phones black. I don't know why, but they do. And so it's like, yeah. I'm digging around in there. And this is a longer story than I was anticipating telling, but like, it's a good story. So I'll, I'll finish it. Yeah. Like, have you ever heard anybody scream for their life? There's a different story I have done that I was kidnapped at gunpoint. So yeah, I've done that myself. So you know, it's a different thing. Yeah. It's a different sound. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Even if you've never heard it, as soon as you hear it, you know exactly what it is. Correct. You correct. Know what I mean? Correct. 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 Completely, like, man. And all three of them started screaming like that. And I thought, oh, shit, this is not good. Oh. Not a good situation. And so I like got out of that Suburban and I look up and there's a double trailer semi out of coming out of control and that jackknife just coming. Holy crap. Already right there. Or right on top of us. Already. Oh, my God, man. You think, well, you just run off the highway, get out of the way. Well, the problem is there was a snowpack. Because it's February. Mm, so you can't really do that either. Yeah. You had to run across the interstate, two lanes, I-25 to the median to hopefully get away. My friend Adam, who's a tennis player, real fast, he sprinted off in typical Adam fashion. He got the hell out of there. <laughs> <laughs> the woman was running next, behind him, and then the man was running, and then I was last because I was so far behind. And we're running at the last, and we're running, and the truck is barreling down on us like this. And we're like kind of, the four of us are like this, and the truck is like this. And it's right on top of us. And so it's like, we're about to die, all four of us, you know? And at the very last second, Adam jumps into the, he like launches himself into the median. The brother launches his sister. I mean, just like launches her, like superhuman strength, launches this woman, grown woman into the median. And then at the very last second, he's at the back of the first trailer. I'm at the front of the second trailer. And it hits their car at the last second and flings us like this. Like Holy shit. He actually... It was free of it because it like knocks like this. And so yeah. he's here, but when it hinged, it flicked me down the road a hundred feet. So twice in the, in the same night for you. Yeah. Yeah. Hit my semi truck. Like just going like 55 miles an hour. Throws me down the interstate. Okay. And then it barrels into my car and crushes my car. So then I'm on the interstate and I'm on the black ice and a car comes and goes out of control on the black oh, ice. Man. <laughs> oh my God, man, dude. So runs over up to me, pulls me out of the way, and like saves me for the second time. So had I been stuck in my truck, would have been dead. Had I got hit by that car, which by the way was driven by my two best friends, that car. You gotta change your friends, man. We need to talk about that. You gotta change. You need new friends. (laughs) The long story short, like I was in really rough damage, and we got a a sizable settlement, and that put me in a position where I could kind of, I had a little more flexibility with my life. Mm. And so I went to law How old were you? You said you were 16 at that time? 16, okay. yeah. So I went to law school, went to Lewis and Clark College out in Portland. You lived out in yeah. Tennessee, you know, area. Uh, that's where I met my wife. Then I went to law school down in Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. Worked for a federal judge for a year. Then went to get back to get another degree. Because at that point, I was just burning money and I just didn't want to get a real job. So I just thought right. I'd like stay in school so like nobody would fun. bother me. Being in school is yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it got to the point where I realized that like, well, if I'm going to not have a job, I might as well just not have a job. Why pay $40,000 a year in tuition? True. So I just quit halfway through, moved to Washington, D.C., and I sold, this was 2007, okay? Remember what happened, what was going on back there, right? Yep. It's 2007. These investments had been made on my behalf into two banks, one that shot higher. It was a 5X in like four or five years, nothing. It was crazy. Wow. So I said, I'm going to sell it. That's a great 2007 you know, seemed like a great thing at that time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great time to sell a bank. You know, I didn't know that, but like yeah. it turns out it was, right? And so then my plan was to go to Washington, D.C., get a really nice apartment mm-hmm. and read until read as many books as I could until my money ran out. And at that point, I'd get a job. So where in D.C., where are you? Yeah, I don't know. If we, we didn't talk about that. I just moved from D.C. to Raleigh. I was in Arlington, Bethesda, we're kind of like in those areas. We were in Arlington and Alexandria. Oh, you were? Okay. Awesome, man. Clarendon. We were in Clarendon. The Barnes and Nobles complex. We were right behind that. The townhomes. Well, yeah. So I was in 3000 Washington. Remember that? One? Oh, yeah, yeah. I know that. I know exactly where you were. 
That's crazy, man. That's crazy. Yes, yeah, so I moved there. Then my wife married me, like, which was crazy because we dated in secrecy for 12 years. And wow. she's Afghan and I'm not Muslim. Okay. I'm not Afghan. I'm right. not like those things. They're traditional. I mean, they're like from the village. Right. You know what I mean? So her family wasn't okay with it. So we just finally waited and finally we just had enough and said, let's just go ahead and do it anyways. Yeah. So she moved out there. We got married. We had kids and I needed a real job at that point. And so I started writing about banks. That was a job. I don't think that's a job anymore, man. What I did was I read all the books I could read about. I mean, I have a huge library. Yeah, I see the books behind you. I look at the yeah. books behind you. Yeah, I started reading like all the books I could possibly read on banking. And it, awesome. I can't tell you how powerful it is to self-educate yourself. Right. You can, there's the sky is the limit. It's amazing. This is actually a great segue into something that I want to talk to you about, which is going to be, we were going to look into the banking crisis, right? Kind of like what's happening right now and then kind of go from there. But actually, you know what's going to be very helpful? I have a thesis and I could be wrong. I have a thesis. Most people actually don't even understand how banks were conceptualized, why they were conceptualized. People who work in there, what motivates them? Kind of like, let's actually take a journey back in time, if that's okay. We won't spend two hours on it. We'll just give a contextual overview so that folks have, when they're listening to the crisis, they can make sure they understand it. So John, from your perspective, from after reading so many books and talking to so many bankers, let's go back in time and say when the concepts of banks were conceptualized, what they implemented, help us walk through and then let's figure out once the second incident I really wanted to talk to you about is when the central bank was getting formed, the Fed, which I don't even think people know it's not a federal bank. It's not a federal agency. It's really just a call Fed. That's a completely different podcast in itself. But would love to get that insight and how that changed some things. And then along the way, when the gold and we got off the golden standard, it'll be good to understand these key milestones and how that affected banks. And I'm going there for a reason. What I want to understand is there's a crisis that's happening today. And where do we think we're going next? Of course, this is nobody has a crystal ball, including you. So we're going to make some hypothecations and some assumptions and some base informed judgments. So I wouldn't say nobody act on anything that John and I are talking right now. We're just having a conversation and hopefully you can gain some insights from there. Yeah, but that's in terms of where banking started. I mean, a long time ago, I don't even know how long. I mean, like kind of modern society, not even modern society, like kind of societies. But where we got our banking system from, like the iteration that we took it off of, like it kind of started in Florence, Italy, under the Medici family. Mm-hmm. When they were mm-hmm. running Florence in and around the time of the Renaissance, there was a bridge there. Have you been to Florence? I have not. No, I need to go there. Oh, it's an awesome. Have you been to Italy? I have not. No, I need country, to go. It's a country shaped like a boot. Oh, yeah, you that's have- true. Now that I think about the map. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> we're going okay. there, man. You need to go. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where it came from. And like, it's the purpose of banking. It started out as a safekeeping of your money. Mm-hmm. It's how it started. But then what that transitioned into was then these guys realized like, oh, well, like I have all this money. Like, why don't I do something with it? So these people have too much money and they're putting it here for me to keep safe. But then there are these other people who don't have enough need money. money. Yeah. And so then they like put those things together. <clears throat> that's where we are today. Got it. So that bank, so I'm assuming I'll oversimplify it. Essentially, bank is like a lending, is pretty much a lending institution. They raise capital from depositors and then they deploy that capital. As a depositor, they'll give you X percentage. And when they invest, they'll make X plus delta. Is that pretty much a bank? There's two ways that you can think about a bank. Number one, you can think about a bank as a retail store. It just buys and sells money like a retail store buys and sells shoes. 
Okay, mm-hmm. you buy cheap from depositors, you lend it dear to borrowers. Yeah. Right. So same thing, the spread, that's your profit, right? Yeah. Your net revenue. That's one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is that a bank is a leveraged fund. It's just like a leveraged fund. Okay. It's just mm. a big balance. That's all it is. Loans are assets, deposits yeah. are liabilities. Okay. And so you're just going out and you're leveraging way up. The typical bank is leveraged 10 to 1. If you have a billion dollar bank, that typical billion dollar bank will have 100 million in equity or capital. The rest of it is borrowed money that then is used to buy yeah. assets. Let me quickly stop before we go there because I, want, I think people are going to get lost in one thing. When we say a bank is a billion dollar, what does that really mean? Oh, a billion dollars worth of assets. Okay. So you aggregate all the assets. The, <clears throat> so a bank's balance sheet will have loans. Will be like a typical bank will have like sixty to seventy percent of its assets are loans. Mm-hmm. But then on top of that, you'll have securities, and these are really safe securities, like government securities or mortgage-backed securities that are guaranteed right. by the government. And on top of that, you'll have cash and stuff like that. <laughs> That makes up your bank balance sheet. Bank has a billion dollar. If it's a billion dollar bank, you said it's about a hundred million dollars in depository accounts. Capital, right? In capital. So like, let's, yeah. So you go out and buy a car. Let's say you go out and buy like, nah, that's not a good example. When you buy your house, you have to put twenty percent down or whatever it is for yeah. a conventional mortgage. Yeah. Right. That's a very leveraged loan. The only reason anybody would make that loan to you as an individual that lasts thirty years is because the government backs it up. Okay. Mm. It's the only reason they're going to make that loan. A bank is leveraged 10 to 1. So even it's twice as levered as that transaction. And right. so that matters because it makes you very fragile as a bank. Very, very fragile. Because it means that if the assets on your balance sheet decline in value by 10%, it totally wipes you out. And you look at like, yeah. the site and that happens all the time. Assets decline by 10%. And so it's like, this will just wipe you out. And the other thing is that like, because banks, it's not just the amount of leverage that they use, it's the type of leverage, and that is deposits, mm-hmm. right? And what's interesting about deposits is that, or unique about deposits, is that it's callable money. I want my deposits right now. I go down and get my deposits right now. Yeah, yeah. It's a callable loan. And so, like, everybody wants to do that at the same time. In the bank run, the bank goes down, right? And so, like, that makes you even more fragile because you don't even have to have anything wrong. Throughout history, like, there's been so many banks that have failed, that didn't have anything wrong, but just there's rumors about them. Help me understand one thing. We'll talk about the house stuff, right? Maybe you already answered that question. So when you're buying a house, you're putting 80% loan on it, right? Or something like that, depending upon that. We're generalizing the numbers, somewhere between 75 to 80%. So if you're doing that, now, if the house goes down in value, the money doesn't disappear, right? It's not like you're kicked out of the house. So when the bank's assets are going down in value, is it really because people's faith in that bank has gone down or something systematically is happening at the bank? Either the assets have to be now restructured or we'll go fast forward, the Silicon Valley Bank, the bonds, they had a longer term bonds and the money became due today, whatever, however they want to do that. What causes that? I'm just sticking with the house analogy for a second because I want to put half folks wrap their brain around this because it's important to understand how bank and house works similar in terms of leverage, but they're not same. You're right. Because it's like, I don't think as long as you can make your payments, it doesn't matter what the value is. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter at all. The difference is that like the regulators require you to hold a certain amount of capital. Right. And so if your assets decline to a certain amount, you don't have enough capital anymore because they add the decrease. Let's say you have a bunch of loans that go bad. Yeah. And that decreases your capital by whatever it is. You take a 10% loss, right? So that eats up all your capital. Like the mm-hmm. regulators... They'll come in and seize your bank on a Friday afternoon. They're not going to let you perform. 
not going to let you keep staying open for business. It's not safe. And is that information that volatile and that accessible that it could happen on a moment's notice that the Fed would not, somebody, the regulators would know that it went and dropped? Is it a reporting mechanism? How would somebody know that the bank's in trouble? I mean, so what's <clears> interesting about banking, it's the only industry where there is data on every single institution, public and private, that you can get on a quarterly basis from the FDIC. It is incredibly transparent. Mm. Now, that makes it sound like you could like, predict a lot of this stuff. You can't, right? Yeah. A lot of this stuff still hits at the last minute. The people even inside the banks oftentimes don't see these things coming. And so this thing, it just hits. Like Silicon Valley, I mean, they just like, well, I was talking to somebody, one of the former executives at Silvergate, the bank, mm-hmm. one of the first yeah. in all of this. Yeah. And they lost 70% of their deposits over the course of a week. And they were like 11 billion in deposits. I mean, they had a, or 11 billion in assets. Wow. They had a lot. Yeah. They just blew out the, wall, out the door. First Republic lost something like 100 billion in deposits over the course of like two days. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It happens quickly. Okay. That makes sense. Before we move into the current crisis. Yeah. Give us the insight of the folks who are running the banks. Kind of like, how did they work in this? Like, why would somebody want to be, put themselves in that institution? And what kind of person does it take to be successful there? Like, how do they make themselves better? Let me answer a different question first, and then I'll answer that question. Yeah. Here's what's really interesting about banking. The other metaphor I gave was the, comparing it to like a shoe store, okay? Yeah. That's a fair way to think about it, except for there's some real, in a general sense, but there's some really important exceptions. And I call these the peculiarities of banking that change the dynamics so significantly that like the underlying forces that dictate banking and other types of businesses are completely different. Okay. Let me explain. What are the primary constraints a shoe store faces? Two major constraints, right? Footfall and the inventory. Two major reasons. Two major constraints. Supply and demand. demand. Supply and demand. Simple, right? Or labor. Maybe you don't have enough employees. It's constraints. You're looking at constraints, 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 right? Or scarcity, rather, is the primary constraint. That is the exact opposite in banking. The primary constraint in banking is abundance. It's crazy to Mm -hmm. think about, but like there is an infinite amount of demand for loans, okay? If you set the interest rate low enough and the terms easy enough, literally the demand curve goes perfectly vertical, Yeah. okay? Because like, let's say somebody comes to you and they say, hey, like, we will lend you as much money as you want at 1% and it's non-recourse. How much do you want? What would you say? As much as I can get. Infinity dollars. That's what I said. Yep. Infinity dollars, please. Yeah. Because who cares? Who cares, right? Because you know you can definitely make more than 1%, no matter what yeah. you do. And it doesn't you can do if that. it's not, of course, who even cares? Who cares? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, you have an infinite demand, okay? You also have the ability to go out and buy basically an infinite amount of dollars to then lend. Mm-hmm. So, infinite supply and infinite demand for all intents and purposes. Right. So, what does that mean? That means that you can grow these things as fast as you want. In the short term, I mean, you could take one from like 10 million in assets to 20 billion in a matter of just a couple of years. It's been done. And so, what does that mean? Well, that means that now I'm going to your second question. That means that the onus is on the bankers to control their own growth. Right. Which humans are not good at because why? Because we like short term profits that mm-hmm. we put into our pockets and yeah. we don't care so much about the long term. Because you, know you may not be there at the bank at that time. Who cares? Might Somebody else's problem. Yeah. Somebody else's problem. And like, and like, well, we can get all this money right now. Let's just get it all right now. And so when you think about banking and you go back all the way to the beginning of the country, there have been 17,000 plus bank failures in this country. There's only 4,000, whatever, 4,200, 4,300 banks today. And so you think like, 
Well, that's why so many banks fail because they go out and they grow irresponsibly really quickly, mm-hmm. bring in all their own money to themselves, right? And then the bank fails. And so what's interesting is that like, you know, this whole thing in the investing world and all this in the corporate world about pay for performance. Of course. Right? Yeah. Pay for performance. You know what that is, right? That's bullshit. They think it's an incentive to make the business grow, but it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not at all. If you are driven by money, you're the wrong person to run a company. You're the wrong person. Yeah, completely agree. Completely. Because you know the problem there is then you're going to violate your fiduciary duty against Mm -hmm. self Because you're going to be thinking about yourself, not about the business, right? Right. And so what's interesting is that because banks use so much leverage and that type of leverage, the callable loans or the callable deposits, the margin for error is so small that like any type of error based upon making a decision for the wrong reasons causes banks to implode like almost overnight. Right. So you have to, when you go on, you say, well, okay, well, I've gotten to know like a lot of the top bankers in the country, mm-hmm. like, well, personally on a personal basis. And I have come to believe that the ones that are dedicated to their fiduciary duty against self-dealing and they're therefore able to throttle the bank's own growth. They all have a commonality. And that commonality is they've all had been exposed to acute tragedy or hardship. I could go through, I could just list off a bunch of names and like the things that they've gone Guy named up in Washington, the biggest bank based up in Washington, Washington Federal, the mm-hmm. seventh ranked bank in the country by all time total shareholder return. Wow. Like that's a pretty good blood ranking. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's like cream of the crop when you want to be. He's 15 years old. It's the night after Christmas. It's like two in the morning. His mom comes pounding on his door, opens the door, flings it open. Your dad's unconscious. I can't wake him up. So Brent like gets up. His name is Brent Beardall. He gets up. He's a big bear of a man too. Gets up, he runs down to his parents' bedroom. He can't rouse his father either. His mom calls the ambulance. They say, well, the ambulance is going to take 15 minutes. Brent Beardall, as a 15-year-old boy, picks his dad's body up, take him through the house, down the driveway, down the walkway to the street where they have the car parked, put him in the back seat. Brent gets in the back seat with him. His mom gets in the front seat. They drive to hospitals. Dad never gains consciousness and he dies. But what's interesting is that like, and Brent is a very spiritual man. Mm-hmm. And his dad never regained consciousness for a week. And they had a prayer. They did a fast and a prayer. And they basically said, I'm not spiritual, but I can appreciate people who are mm-hmm. very much. And they said, you know, they're like, basically said to God, like, look, either take him to be with you or give him back to us. Like this middle stage is not right. working. Right. And literally within like 20 minutes, he passed away. And so it's like to Brent, I think it solidified in his head, this connection to a higher entity you would never know it because he doesn't like talk about God and all that stuff and try to like convert right. you. All you notice is that he is so optimistic and so positive all the time. And that's where that positivity comes from. And that is his primary leadership skill. The guy named Richard Davis, Richard Davis ran U.S. <laughs> Bank. Okay? U.S. Bank went into the financial crisis and they emerged from the financial crisis with the highest debt rating in the entire banking industry. That's yeah. even better than J.P. Yeah. Morgan. Okay? Yeah. Because of this guy named Richard Davis. I spent a couple of days with them up at their headquarters in Minneapolis. And just right before the Super Bowl that they're having that year in Minneapolis in U.S. Bank Field. And so Richard says to me, why don't I take you around and show you where all the stuff is? Because he was the co-chairman of the Super Bowl committee for the city of Minneapolis. So mm-hmm. he knew where everything would be. And so he's like, well, let me take you around and show you. Because there's these interconnecting walkways on the second floor of all the buildings in downtown Minneapolis that are glass. Mm-hmm. So you don't walk out in the snow, you know? And so we're walking around. He's like, well, that's going to be the ski jump, fake ski jump. That's going to be the ESPN booth. That's going to be this. That's going to be this. That's going to be this. And we run into, this is, he's the chairman of the bank at this point. He just retired as CEO, is still the chairman. We run into a young employee. She must have been 24 years old. 
She's with her parents. And she stops and says, oh, Mr. Davis. And he like knew her name. Like she's like 20, literally like 24. You know wow. what I mean? Like bank, this is a huge bank. It's a sixth large yeah. bank. Yeah. He knew He's like, oh, you know, Alice or whatever her name was. Like, <laughs> I'm not good like him. Like I can remember. He's like, yeah. oh, you know, she's like, well, I'm giving my parents a tour. And he like turns on them and he's like, oh, your daughter is such an asset at this bank. We're so lucky to have her. Like you have no idea how special of a person she is. And I'm like watching these parents. I'm like, oh my God, these wow. parents, you like, I'm like, these parents are never going to forget about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never. never. Legend. He's so big and important in this industry. And he's saying this yeah. about this. And I remember thinking like, Jesus, like that's how he runs this bank. She leaves and makes other people feel good. Then they make me feel good. Then yeah. everybody feels good. Yeah. And so powerful. So I asked his wife, I asked Richard's wife, Teresa, I said, where the hell did he figure that out? Let me tell you a story. She said it was the night before Thanksgiving, 86 or 87. It's right around in there. They're over at his parents' house and the toilet is running. And Richard's like, well, let me go down to the hardware store and get the piece and I'll fix it for you, dad. Mm-hmm. And dad's like, no, no, the kid's home. This is in Los Angeles. Get the kid's home. We'll see you tomorrow for dinner. So they pack the kids in the car. They drive across town to their house. They walk in the door. Their phone is ringing as soon as they get inside. Ring, ring, ring. Hello? It's his parents' neighbor. Get to the hospital. Something's happened to your father. Okay? They race to the hospital. His dad is already dead. What has happened was his dad had left the house, walked one block down to walk to the strip mall where there's a hardware store mm-hmm. to get the piece. He's walking across the street, bam, hit by a truck and killed instantly. Hit and run accident. Never found the driver, matter of fact. And the thing about it was that like Richard was an SVP at Security Pacific, which is now part of Bank of America. It's a good role, but nothing like the legend he was right. become. His dad was this mathematical genius, as was Richard. But his dad never accomplished or achieved what he felt like he could achieve. He was like a union truck driver. And like, so he was always right. kind of like depressed, but he was like a genius. And so Richard always felt like he had to live not just for himself, but also for his father. Mm-hmm. And so Richard's whole point is that like he never wanted parents of children to not have an opportunity to be proud of their children. Like that was his like driving mm. trait. He showed up everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And I go through all these top CEOs, bang, 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 with stories like that. And the reason that this matters is because, and they themselves will connect the dots. I'm not mm-hmm. just connecting. I'm connecting the dots on a macro basis with right. taking them all together, but they each individually connect the dots. And that matters because like in banking, it's in the good times that you have to behave and it's hard to behave because everybody's growing so fast. And you think, well, I can just keep growing so fast. And right. the, the analysts and the commentators and your employees, everybody wants you to grow fast. And you have to have the courage to be like, no, we're not going to do that. And the thing that allows them to do that is being steeled by experiences of tragedy and hardship. They're like, we've been through a lot worse than this. Like, we're just not going to grow fast and ain't nothing going to happen to us. That's fine. And so that's- Wow, John. This is actually so counterintuitive. Yeah. So counterintuitive. I would have never thought about it looking at it that way. An outsider perspective, and I don't know that many bankers, personally, at the personal level at least, what I had always thought about is- individuals who are after money, greed, power, who are going to the banking world because there's this whole concept, right, where you make the most money when you're a bank. It kind of goes to the association, which is kind of sad. Now, after hearing the story that you're talking about is a good banker is really who can control the growth, not fuel the growth. And fueling growth is fine, but in a controlled manner, right? That's a very interesting insight, which I was thinking about it, and maybe I'm extrapolating that, It's actually true in any field, right? 
And we were talking about this cycle that I always talk about it is that, and for my listeners, I don't think I've ever talked about it, so I'll repeat that. Bad times create good people. Good people create great times. Great times create weak people. Weak people create bad times, right? And it's really that whole cycle. So if somebody has not dealt with adversities, they don't know what that means. That doesn't mean they're good or bad right now at that moment. But the times that they're going to create next is there's going to be bad times because they don't have personally felt with it. Part of that is, unfortunately, there's only two ways to learn, either through your own suffering or through somebody else's suffering. Unfortunately, human beings, they only do one way, which is suffer themselves. So if you're not really suffering on any level, and hopefully that level is not too deep, if you haven't really seen the suffering and adversity, you're not going to grow into a human being. That you're going to be able to manage yourself, manage your work, manage your business, or whatever you have to manage. You're just not going to be able to, right? So I mean, I love, thanks for sharing these insights. They were very powerful because I could see that being used everywhere, but more important in banking, when they have to yeah. control the abundance. Because that's when it could get out of hand. And because the margin for error is so small. So you've got to be making the right decision for the right reason. Right, or right. Else, like, let me, can I tell you one more story? This is my favorite story. Yeah, let's do it. Well, first of all, let me say this, that like you kind of alluded to this. There's this perception of bankers as greedy fat cats just intent on making money on other people's yeah. money. That yeah. is an unfair characterization of bankers. You mm. go into any town in this country, any town, any city, and you look at the United Way board, you look at the YMCA, you look at all those boards, all the movers and shakers, all the things. Who's on those boards? Bankers are on bankers. all the boards. Yeah. They're the ones raising the capital for the hospital. They get the bad rap that unfortunately is a product, it's a relic of history. It's a relic of anti-Semitism is mm. what that is. It's horrible, but that's what it is. And it's like, it's buried so deep. So this guy named Ross McKnight, okay? Ross McKnight runs a bank down in, so there was a banking crisis in Texas in the 1980s. I mean, like nine out of the 10 biggest banks down there no longer existed after like mm. 1989 or something like that. I mean, they all went down. So there are all these little banks went broke. So what you do is the FDIC will go in and take them. And then if they'll try to sell those banks to somebody, but they sell them for like nothing, like a thousand bucks, five thousand right. bucks, you can buy a bank. Ross McKnight bought one of those banks in a tiny little town in Texas, only Texas. It's nearby where he grew up in Throckmorton. So he buys this bank. He now grows it into a, like a $4 billion asset bank. This is a very sizable bank. He owns it 100% himself, which means mm -hmm. that his ownership stake in that thing is probably $500 million or something like that. And he is a big time player in oil and ranching. He's a Texan. I mean, he's a big imposing man, like intimidating man, because he's so powerful and where he's in his realm. And I was down there and meeting with him and the president of that bank, CK Lee, who's just the awesomest guy. And we were sitting in the Ritz, kind of the library, this library on the first level of the Ritz. And I was interviewing him and I got to talk about this stuff about his family history. When I go and interview bankers, I don't talk about banking. I talk about family history. What's the of course. thing? Yeah. I'm talking about family history and He's telling me about his dad. And I knew that his dad died of a heart attack. Well, his dad was a drunk. And so I said, well, do you remember the day your dad died? Of course you remember the day your dad died. Yeah. You know, he was 15 years old and he was, his dad was an alcoholic, like a helpless alcoholic. And he would go on these like 10 day, two week benders, drinking, just drunk the whole time. And Ross was 15 and he stayed home for Thursday and Friday to sober his father up. He got him sobered up. So he thought like, ah, we're good. Then he went to a football game Friday night. When he got home, his dad was wasted again. And his mom had given him alcohol. Mm. And on the floor, kind of passed out. And because Ross kind of went to bed. Well, he wakes up the next morning, his dad's still on the floor, but he wants to watch TV. So he says to Ross, he says, can you hand me the remote? 
And Ross says to him, get the remote yourself, you old drunk. That's what he says to him, okay? Because he's just frustrated with this situation. Frustrated, of course. He's of course. Mean, you know? He goes out, leaves, goes dove hunting with his friends. About halfway through the dove hunting session, somebody comes out and says, your dad is dead. So I said, Ross, like, do you regret those words? Those are the last words you said to your father. Yeah. It was like one of the most poignant moments of my career because he is such an amazing guy. And it just, it caught him. And it's just like, oh my God, like the wound is still so raw. Because then what happened mm. after that, mom left, just abandoned him, this mm. like later. So he, starting at 15, raised himself, okay? He then buys this ranch and buys, gets all this oil money and all this stuff. And he loves Broadway musicals, okay? And so he goes to like basically every Broadway musical that opens. And so he was going to, he went to this one in 1987, I think, or 88 called mm -hmm. Chess. That's based off Bobby Fischer in this very famous match during this Cold War between the United, chess match between the United States and Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And I guess Bobby Fischer much have had a challenged relationship with his mother too. And there's a song in it about three quarters of the way through. And it's called Pity the Child is the title of it. And the first part of the first half of the song is about basically pity the child because it didn't know the love of a mother. Sure. But then it switches into, no, 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 Pity the mother because she didn't know the love of a child. Well, that's really powerful. Wow. Very special. And Ross McKnight says to me at that moment, he says, I just started crying, bawling in the front row of that theater because I realized at that moment that my entire life I'd spent trying to prove I was worthy of my mother's love. Wow. That was the thing. That oh, man, that is so powerful, dude. So powerful. Yeah. Isn't that cool? It is interesting, right? Because I think sometimes this is what's important to talk with the folks, get different perspectives, change your current ecosystem, because you don't know. And I don't think there are a lot of people listening to that same lyrics of that song. And I'm sure he may have heard that song before as well, somewhere. Who knows? But at that moment is when he actually connected the two worlds together. And it just kind of altered him right at that point. Yeah, I'd heard it before. He was there. He'd go to the openings of these shows. Mm, okay. It was real time when he heard it and realized all this stuff. That's so powerful, man. I always tell folks, this, listen to podcasts, right? Listen to YouTube videos, whatever you want to listen to. Listen to perspectives that are not yours. And don't talk to people who have your perspectives because you're not going to grow. They're good. They're comfortable, which is perfect. You need friends. You need people that you can have a conversation with. But if that's the only thing you have around you, you're not going to develop. I think most yeah. of, unfortunately, including me at some point, we're looking for folks that we can relate to. And the only way we can relate to is because they comfort you in your stupidity and you're looking for conformance. And that's really now where the growth is. But thank you again for this story. I can only imagine your life has been so enriched by these interviews that you're having a different perspective of the life completely. I can only imagine. I'm jealous of you, man. Yeah, but it doesn't make me a better person than anybody else. It just makes me like almost a worse person, right? Because I still do stupid <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you don't have a justification anymore. I do have a justification. I didn't know. <laughs> you didn't know. I, like, I just do it knowingly. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Let me question, though, because on that yeah. point that you brought up, if you go into a, a conversation with somebody who disagrees with you, how mm -hmm. do you handle that? How For me, I actually become more curious that, okay, give me your perspective, right? And I'll tell you, it's just backfired a lot of times, and I'll tell you why I think it's backfired. I want to say, okay, tell me your perspective. I'm okay with you disagreeing with that, but then don't say because I feel it. 
I don't know how to respond to that part. At that point, I'll just shut off. I'm like, okay, give me a logical argument of what your thought process is, how you thought about it. I'm okay disagreeing because I think what happens, it's like faith, right? There's only so much wise behind faith. At some point, the answer is going to be, is because I said so. That argument is not going to go anywhere at that point. It's not going to enrich anyone's life. I'm not saying faith is right or faith is wrong, but it's really when people have opinions which are not well thought through, at some point, especially when you're trying to understand it, they're going to become defensive. They're yeah. going to end up becoming defensive. They're going to basically say, why are you questioning my beliefs? They're going to take it very personal, right? But a conversation yeah. with someone like you, I think I'd be okay you disagreeing with me because you're going to give me a perspective that is good for you and you've thought about it does not mean I have to agree. Now I'll walk away from the conversation. Like, you know what? That's actually an interesting point of view. Let me think about it more. And I may act on it or I may not, but at least I walk away with something different. To me, it's not even about like, I like eccentric people, like they're way out there, you know yeah. what I mean? Cause like that's where you find interesting stuff. True. Yeah, True. That's what you wrote to your point. Like, I don't even like when I get in these conversations, I don't even talk. I just ask questions. Like they don't, of course. By, by the end of it, they don't know anything about me. I know everything about them. And then they go away yeah. thinking like, that guy's a really good. And I, they feel good because who doesn't like talking about themselves, right? Talking about themselves, yeah. That's perfect, John. So you know what? I think let's switch gears here because I want to respect for your time. Let's actually bring it down to the current reality of what's happening right now in the market. We were talking about, or we are reading at least about Silicon Valley Bank, about First Republic, about other banks, and it's probably just the beginning of it. Help us understand the crisis that we're in right now when we looked about banks because you give us a good framework of your assets drop in value, so your leverage ratio changes, the regulators are going to say you can't be a bank anymore, period. So help us understand that perspective where we are and why are the asset prices dropping? Okay, so if you go back to the beginning, this is actually a really fundamental point. That you have to do a lot of like research. You're not going to hear it in very many places, but it's like, this is how banking works. So it's like, we were talking earlier about abundance. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying abundance begets failure in banking. And it does. Yeah. And here's why. So you have a whole bunch of cash, they dumped on a bank and deposits. So that bank has got to pay those depositors, right? Whatever. Not, not mm-hmm. a lot, but you have to pay them, right? And so the, you have to offset that with earning assets, right? Sure. So you got to go take that money and invest it. Well, if you get too much money dumped on you at one time, there's not enough safe investable assets. And so what we see is that throughout time, there are these periods, I call them novel liquidity flows, okay? And what I mean by that is money flowing into the United States economy from outside, from either another economy mm-hmm. or up to the ground, like from the Federal Reserve by money creation, sure. right? When you bring a bunch of money and you dump a bunch of liquidity into a system, it knocks it out of equilibrium, okay? Mm-hmm. It's got, to, it's got to find its way back then, right? And so there's a huge novel liquidity surge in the late 1800s. There was when the United States was like, kind of, we had gone through the American Industrial Revolution and we were kind yeah. of the top dogs. And like, and we had gone from a trade deficit for ba- almost 100 years to a trade surplus for almost 100 years. Mm-hmm. And that switch from a deficit to a surplus, that's a huge novel liquidity flow. That's just tons of money flowing into the country, okay? So that caused, that set up 100 years of banking. That huge pile of money yeah. explained the next 100 years of banking. Then 1973, there's a cut in the fabric of time. It's totally brought, we start all over again. And that comes, came about as a result of the Yom Kippur War mm-hmm. between Israel and the Arab states. Well, the United States supported Israel. And in retaliation for our support of Israel, the Arab states cut off the exports of oil to the United States. Yep. 
put an oil embargo on us. That caused oil prices to shoot way up. That caused inflation to shoot way up. That caused Paul Volcker then comes into the Federal Reserve, caused interest rates to shoot way up. And then ever since then, everything that's happened going into the financial crisis of 2008 happened because of that thing. Hmm. The financial crisis of 2008 was the final thing, the final release of that excess liquidity that came into the system as a result of all of that. It was the final release. So then we're sitting around and we're like, okay, well, are we in a new era? Are we in the same old era? Or are we in some sort of purgatory after the financial crisis? Mm-hmm. And nobody really knew. But then what happens? Coronavirus. Yeah. What does the government do? Huge amounts of liquidity. The Federal Reserve comes in, fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus. I mean, they're just like, I mean, tons of money, tons. They're just dumping it into the system. Because GDP had declined on an annualized basis thirty percent in the second quarter of 2020. That's worse than the Great Depression. Yeah. See, they came in so hard with all that support, knocks the system out of equilibrium again. So now it's got to find its way back to equilibrium. And as it's finding its way to back to equilibrium, it's got to let these liquidity out. And the thing we know about liquidity is that, like, when you release liquidity, it doesn't just like quietly like exit out the side door. It like bangs its way out the front. Okay, mm. and that was the first out the front was these bank failures. So now you look at the banks, you say, well, like, okay, well, how does this all explain what happens? Silicon Valley Bank, let's talk about it. They had 60 billion in deposits at the end of 2019. Mm-hmm. Two years later, they had $190 billion. So just $130 wow. billion just dumped on this bank's head. $130 billion. Wow. Okay. What are you going to do with all that? Yeah. You guys are sitting around thinking like, what the hell are we going to do with all this? It's too much. Well, they said, well, we can't do anything risky. So let's buy the safest securities we can think of. So they go out and they buy treasuries, but most more importantly, they buy $70 billion worth of mortgage-backed securities. So these are mortgages that are then packaged into these securities. And then yeah. Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac stamps them with government approval. They're now government insured, basically government backed. So mm-hmm. these are basically riskless assets. So they buy these out. But the problem is that these things go out seven years, 10 years in duration. Right, And the reason they go out seven to 10 years in duration is because a bank matches the asset, duration of the assets and the duration of its liabilities. Right. And so they're trying to, they have all these deposits and deposits people think are short-term. Deposits are like super long-term. They just sit forever. They're yeah. replenished, but they sit forever. You know, we change Correct. banks. No. Yeah. So they're like, well, we need to match long-term assets with these long-term liabilities. What they didn't realize, and this is a mistake that anybody would have made. There's people out there saying like, oh, we would have been, done it differently. That's not true. Everybody would have made the same mistake or a different stupid mistake that would have caused it to yeah. fail. So they go out and they buy these long. And then so the problem is that then when the interest rates start coming up abruptly in 2022, there's an inverse relationship between bond prices or securities prices and interest rates. And so those security prices just tank in value. And so that bank is like way underwater in terms of its solvency technically, but actually it's kind of fine because a bank can put these securities into this other bucket. It's called held to maturity. And you don't have to mark those to markets. It doesn't matter. It's like you just leave the value of those doesn't matter. You just like yeah. wait till they come due and then you just like get the full amount. Well, they had very sophisticated clients at this bank, Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen and all these mm-hmm. guys. And they're looking at their portfolio companies because this company, this is a bank that's basically was the bank of all the VC and startup community in America. And they say to their portfolio companies who have all this money in this bank, get that money out because that thing could go down. So everybody pulls their money out at the last second at the same Mm. time. I think they lost 70, I can't remember if it was 70 billion or or what it was. I mean, they lost a ton 
of assets on just like almost overnight. And so that's what caused that bank to fail. And the reason why it's happening, I want to understand the bank run, right? So when the bank run happens, which essentially means everyone's trying to withdraw their money right away, and everyone's doing it at the same time, is because they still have to maintain that 10% of liquidity to be a bank. So now if people are asking their money back, they now have to go sell the securities, correct? Yeah, well, the bigger problem is that it's called fractional banking. Mm -hmm. So if a bank is holding $190 billion in deposits, it's not holding all that in cash. It's holding that's maybe true. 15 deposits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, if you want to get your money out, you better get there quick. You know what I mean? Correct. Or else you're not going to be able Correct. to get out. That's what caused, it's like a prisoner's dilemma type of scenario. Mm -hmm. so that's what causes that massive response by. Is that the same with First Republic? They did the same exact stuff. So when folks are saying they can avoid it, at the time, knowing what they did was the best thing they could, which is putting it in a safer asset, right? But mortgage-backed securities, 2008, we saw the same thing. So is it really safe anymore? One could argue that we've already seen that movie play once, right? Or maybe multiple times, not just once. Well, the mortgage-backed securities you're referring to back in 2008 were not guaranteed by the government. The government stuck behind all those guarantees on those mortgage-backed securities. Now, it did not guarantee Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's preferred stock. Mm -hmm. That caused a lot of problems. But the securities you're talking about are the ones that were not guaranteed. So those are subprime securities that Fannie and Freddie wouldn't stamp. Yeah. So I think this time what we're saying is even the ones that had the government-backed security backing they lost value because the interest rates went, went start going up, correct? That's, so, that's right. Okay. I would call it an unavoidable error. Yeah. Avoidable error. It was like, it was an error and mm -hmm. there's just no way around that, but it was damn near unavoidable. Right, right. Now, I think the key thing is, okay, that's fine. It's in the past, it's happening. We're either suffering it. So thankfully, nobody has lost any money because FDIC, I mean, the banks have been sold. So everyone, yeah, they're going to make billions of dollars in money. The banks will, like JP Morgan Chase is going to make a ton of money right now because they got pennies on a dollar. First Republic, right? So that's neither here nor there. I don't think any one of us can even control it. Yeah, we can bitch and moan about it, but that's pretty much what it is while we can do. So a retail investor, people like you and I, people like our friends, our families, how should they look at the world right now? Because everyone's trying to grow their capital. Big banks are safe, but I don't even know if they are. So we could argue one way or the other on that. What are the opportunities that you're seeing when you're talking to bankers? Like how are they putting their own money? Because they have to deploy their own capital somewhere. Whatever, they're making less or more, that's outside of the debate here. But what are the opportunities that you're seeing? And how can we take advantage? Because every crisis is an opportunity. So I'm looking at this as a crisis that's unavoidable. We can't control it. We can't influence it. So where do we find the opportunities here? So the way banking works is that a good bank will earn 12% on its equity every year. Just bang, 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 bang. 12, 14%, something like that. You don't want them earning much more than that because it means they're probably doing stupid stuff. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that means that your return horizon is capped. There's nothing wrong with 12, 14% over a long period of time. That beats, really, yep. beats the S&P a lot. But in any given year, people look at 12% they think, oh, that's not very much. Because they're comparing it to the stock market, which is going up. Because they're comparing it to like tech stocks or like some sort of wacky thing going on. Yeah. Whatever yeah. the thing is time meme stocks or tech stocks, whatever right. the thing is that right. that's going up percent in a year or 70% or, you know, what they forget is that banks can return 12% of their equity every year for like 50 years. And the compounding on that is really powerful. It's amazing. That means yeah. that doubles your money every six years because of Correct. rule of 72. Correct. That's really powerful. So what that means is that if you want to juice your returns in banking, what you do is you got to buy the stock cheap. 
the bank will still earn 12% of equity, but you got to buy the stock cheap. So like if you buy it at book value, okay, that means that you will earn 12% on your equity. But if you buy it at half of book value, that means twice as much. Yeah. So like right now, I'm friends with a lot of the top investors in this space. I'm like, hey, this is when you buy. You don't buy banks. If you're a really good investor, unless you are really dialed in, and there's some banker investors that are really dialed into certain specific scenarios and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But as a general rule, the way you should buy banks is like, wait, 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 buy a whole bunch. And like, When you're saying buying banks, John, what does that mean? I actually don't even know what that means. Does that mean buying a public stock? Or Okay, got it. I mean, depending on how big your wallet is, your wallet is probably big enough. Mine isn't by a whole bank, but I can buy some stock. <laughs> Are you suggesting that this is the time? And I know it's a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. I want to be very careful on that, that now is the time you want to start looking at the bank stock and kind of see when's the right time to buy it. Look, if you're going to buy bank stocks, this is when you buy it. And I mean, like mm. that's just, if you're going to do it, this is when you do it. And you don't buy anything crazy. You just buy the big safe ones because all the stocks are depressed. Right. Don't buy the safe ones that when their stocks are depressed. I mean, it's just it's a hell of a deal. But like the problem is people are so afraid at these moments. You know what I mean? Correct. Like anything else, perfect time to buy real estate, perfect time to buy banks. But most exactly. people are like, oh, I don't want to do it because I don't know what's going to happen. And then five years down the road, they're like, I should have done that. That's really one. What about other things? Like what about investments in general outside of the banks? Is there any thoughts that you may have, any specific asset class? that you think because of this, there's like very correlated asset class where the banks are going to go down, something else is going to go down, but because the banks are going to come up, something else is going to come up. Any thoughts on that, John? No, but I have a more general thought. I'm sure you've talked yeah, about this a let's lot. let's do that. And that is that like, as a general rule, it's really hard to beat the market as a stock picker. It's Definitely. really hard to beat. Definitely. I mean, and like people who think they beat it, I'm not sure they've done the math if they have or not. Like, they don't. It's an excitement. They have a party talk, but that's all it is. Nothing else. Yeah. They're doing it for a different reason, right? Yeah. They're doing it for the same reason you go to the horse track or dog track. Yeah, or whatever. completely, You're, completely. Is there a dog right? track? I've not been there. They are. I don't know if they are still are, but they're... Okay, <laughs> I'm like, dog track, yeah. All right. Yeah. So the best way to do it is like, this is our life. You and I do this for mm-hmm. a living. Yeah. Because you have the podcast, I write and talk to bankers and stuff like that. This is the life. But like, if you're not in finance and that isn't your life, then like the way I think you should structure it is like as simple as possible track the s you know dollar cost average into an s&p 500 yep you know, index fund and just like go on with your live your life just live your life yeah yeah like don't so make it don't, complicated don't, right should i buy tesla should i buy airbnb who knows who cares one of them is going to be right either it's going to go up or it's going to go down you just don't know which side and nobody knows yeah nobody, nobody knows, knows yeah. yeah yeah so like that's what i'd say about investing No, this is good. This is good, John. I think this is actually very insightful because kind of like using that banking crisis, which is exactly what happened in 2008, right? Because a lot of the banks were very cheap. I mean, people were withdrawing money from the banks and buying their bank stock itself, and the money would freaking quadruple in two months or three months. It's another time to start looking. I'm not suggesting this is not an investment advice. I know John's not qualified. I'm not qualified. We don't have licenses. So do not go jump on a bank today. That, hey, because I heard on this podcast that bank stock is good, we should go buy it. Take a look at it. Do your own analysis. At least you have a starting point and a thesis of why we think, or why John thinks more importantly, that it could be the right time to at least explore that. John, we're coming towards the end of our show, my friend. So I want to talk about it as two things. One is 
Looking back in life, I know you had a very interesting life twist when you were 16 that really put your life in a very different direction than you would have imagined before that. If you were to go back to that self at this point now, knowing what you know now, what is one insight you would share with them that would make their migration in life more intentional? I would say don't fight it. Like, go with the current. There's a current in society that just goes, and there's a temptation to fight it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would say go with the current and find your individuality in other ways. Find your individuality in art. Find your individuality as being a really good parent. Find your individuality right. as really good at landscaping. Like, but go with the current. With like, don't get in trouble. Don't push the limits too much. Just go yeah. with the current, and then once focus on your creative energies, kind of selectively in areas that like there's not a lot of activity in. That's what I'd say. There's Love a tendency. Right. To Make whole life too hard. Correct. You know what I mean? Correct, 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 correct. That's very easy to think. I'm going to do something different in this world. I don't know what that means. Let me ask you some questions. Is that all right? Yeah, man. Please. Yeah. Always. Tell me about the day your mother died. Tell you about... I, I got day. Do you remember that day? Distinctly. I had to make the toughest decision of my life, which was, as I said, that my sister passed away a few months before that. And just around that time, my mom just started going into depression. And she didn't take her life away, but her body started to shut down. And I remember the call. I was in India, visited her, and then I came back because the plan was to bring her back home and kind of make sure that she's more comfortable. They called my brother and was like, I can't make that call. Ask my brother. So he asked me to call the hospital. I did. They're like, we need to intubate her or she's going to die. I had to make the hardest call of my life saying, don't intubate her. Oh, because Yeah, because I knew what was going to happen with the intubation that chances of her survival was going to be very slim, the quality of life and everything else. And I knew that's exactly what she would have wanted me to do, although, unfortunately, she didn't write a health directive. In India, there was no, I don't know now if it's changed or not, but me growing up, nobody talks about death, right? Nobody talks about this is how I want to die, This do this when that happens. It's just not a topic and a household topic. I had to make that call, man. I wake up every day, and this happened 2021 in September, and I still wake up to that day and every day I'm like having chills about the decision that yeah. I can't get over that thought that my decision changed somebody's life, not in a way they may or they may not have wanted. I distinctly remember yeah. that, man. Where was she in the hospital? In India or here? In India. And were you here or in India? I was here at that time. So I was in India two weeks ago visiting her, talking to her. And then I left because I had to finish up work here which was one of the biggest reasons I left work because I couldn't be there. Anyway, yeah. that's a very different conversation. But yeah. that's really kind of the day that my mom passed away. Do you remember exactly, can you like paint the picture in your head exactly where you were talking on the phone? Do you remember all like, yeah. was it details? Like, it was three o'clock in the morning, Bethesda, Maryland. And my brother woke me up with a phone call and he's like, we need to call the hospital right away. And I did. And we waited for the, the family to get there in India to make sure that my brother was freaking out. He almost lost it because he lives with my mom. So that loss to him was much bigger than I left home when I was 18. Yeah. And I've since lived alone, but he lived with my mom. Or my mom lived with him, whichever way you want to talk about it. So that loss was going to be big, especially because my dad lost his life in 2015. So he was really my mom as a single parent. Now, so he knew he was going to become an orphan and he wasn't ready for that, right? I really remember those conversations. Did she die pretty much immediately after? Yeah, pretty much within, within the next few hours. They told us, if you don't do anything now, she's going to pass away. So then how did you feel when you heard that she'd actually passed away? 
guilt yeah. and relief both relief and because relief. i saw her struggling she couldn't move off the bed she was in dialysis she was in hospital for 31 days she was starting to get bed sores that's really how i made that choice at that point if i was in that situation what would i do yeah. what would i want my kids to do or hopefully they don't have to make that choice but if they did the choice for them is just let them go then why do you feel guilt the guilt is because i never asked her right i never yeah. asked her i was not there as an immigrant that's a different guilt because you leave the country for a reason which is not family it's not emotional decision to leave a country and i'm the only one here john right in this entire country i'm the only black sheep in the distant family nobody not even my cousins are here so when i i'm like okay la, why did i come here i can spend time with them i can build memories with them it's all of that stuff i think it's not that moment triggered a lot of the things that i had suppressed before and it just resurfaced a lot of that i think i had more guilt not spending time with her than the guilt of pulling the plug for her yeah did you feel like you were selfish by the decision you made to come here and abandon and kind of like leave them is that like the feeling looking back yeah i do feel like i didn't think about and at that age i think if somebody called me selfish i wouldn't even know what that meant but when i made that decision it was the best decision but looking back no it's not like well, this is where my wife keeps reminding me even after i left my w2 i worked like a dog she's like yeah you need to have a balance so i'm like well if i have the balance then this is not going i have my own reasons and i can see that pattern happening again that i have justification of what i do but in my heart i know what's very important is spending time and building memories that's the most important thing to do and i'm going back into the same habit and actually thanks for asking this question because it was interesting i i had completely forgotten about that feeling of being selfish and when i am doing anything in my life right now i need to go back to that feeling because that's what who defines who i am and i'm trying to break away from that feeling by doing something which is against the grain because no one in my life has started a business before no one in my entire family has done a podcast i'm like okay i'm doing something against the grain which is good but it's costing me something and i need to make sure there's always a balance between the two yeah balance is hard you know that my wife is from afghanistan so we have a mixed yeah. kind of race of course what is your wife indian or she she grew up here but she's an indian so it's so interesting you say that she's more in the indian than i am because when her parents left they're not time warp they think india is that but india has completely changed since they left yeah. so my wife is really more of a traditional indian than i am yeah do you watch indian movies tons of them man tons of them always yeah. My wife was like she said when she saw who I was doing the podcast she's like you have to mention Sharo Khan. Sharo Khan. Yes. Sharo Khan. Yeah, how are you saying? Yes. Yeah. I think it depending on when she grew up man Amitabh Bachchan is another one so it was all depending on who what I think there's a lot of Ghanaian friends that I have they know more about the Bollywood which is the Indian yeah. Hollywood than I know sometimes. Yeah. I'm like how do you know this person is married there? I don't even keep track of it. So now yeah. I know that. Okay, absolute favorite food. What is it? the favorite dish what is that dish that you love for me what is the yeah 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 you may not have tried it man i think food is very emotional so it's not because it tastes anymore it's because it brings me back some memories and that's really why i like it it's called chole bhature it's like a puffed fried dough along with chickpeas and onions my mouth is watering thank you for reminding me that that's my absolute best food man you stuff it in the no in this the one dough? is not stuffed this is really a puffed chapati if you think about it yeah. but it's deep fried It's just that every Sunday morning in our house it was a tradition to eat that food. Period. Yeah. And That's why it's it? the best food. My mom made it. We or we brought it from outside. 
my dad loved it. It's like this bring that memory where everyone's together, right? Which is the hardest thing. I'm trying to lose some weight right now. They're bringing health balance, right? And my wife always tells me, why do you love this food? I'm like, just give it up. I'm like, it's because it's emotional to me. It's really emotional. It's not even taste anymore. It's because that's my comfort. I get back into India and I remember those times, even though I know those times are not going to be available at all. But those are the memories. I think food is very emotional. What I realized is favorite food is not really favorite food. It's favorite food, which brings the best memories out, is the favorite food. More than just the eating, it's the experience. It's the experience, man. It's the five senses. It's really five senses. The sensorial experiences way more than just a taste. Yeah. That's an interesting. Nobody has ever ended the podcast with me on asking me the questions. I appreciate that. It's actually yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah, we have turned it on you. And I know you're an interviewer, so that was interesting to hear that perspective. But let me ask this question. Why did you ask me about my mom's passing away? Because I believe that it's in moments like that. Dealing with tragedy, is it changes you. I lost a little sister. Tragically, she fell off a cliff mountain climbing. And oh. she's my best friend. It changes you as a person. It steals you. You know what's weird is that like, yeah, I can't, we're like really going in a lot of areas here. But like, I thought that like, I didn't think that anybody other than my wife and kids dying would ever be able to like really right. bother me after right. my little sister because she's the closest person after that. And so I just yeah. thought like, woof. I'm good to go basically for the most part in terms of like, as long as my kids and my wife are okay, my mom, I guess, like as long as they're okay, I can deal with any death. But then, you know, what's weird is that in January, so I'm very good friends with this guy named Brent Beardall, the CEO of that bank up who carried his father the night after Christmas. Brent and I are really good friends. He's an awesome guy. And he was in a plane crash in the Provo airport in Utah. And like they were in a little jet, it was a little, a Phenom 300. One of his good friends was sitting pilot. And there are two people on the back and they took off. They couldn't get lift and it just creamed in and like crashed into the ground. Pilot died, like literally, like he was ejected out of the airplane, like out of the side of it, not out of a window. Like, I mean, like went out of the side of the airplane, wow. like died. Brent was like mangled in the cockpit. And when I heard my good friend, Jonah Marcus, who runs a big hedge fund that invests in banks out in New York, called me as soon as he heard the news. It was like the first time I'd ever had an emotional reaction to a death since my sister had died. And it was like mm. such a weird response. And I think it was part of it was because I got, I know Brent, I like Brent. It caught yeah. me by surprise. But I was also like, it made me realize, because whenever you get off the phone with Brent, like if you're a good friend of his, he says, I love you, brother. Like, and he does, like he mm. means it. You know what I mean, and I just thought like, how could you extinguish that light? Why, yeah. why, why extinguish that light? You know what I mean? He yeah. makes you feel good every time you talk to him. And so That's... it's like, and I think that that was this thing that caused me, I like, got really emotional, which is like not my thing. Losing somebody from your life is never going to be easy. I think we were talking about before we went on here that it actually gives you, sometimes it's happened, like for me, it actually worked as a blessing, even though it was harder it was because it made me reanalyze my purpose, right? It got me going. Now we have a foundation that's coming up where we're going to be sponsoring 100,000 kids education by 2030. It got me motivated that time's limited. Urgency is important. And you got to do what you got to do now. You can't wait to make $10 billion in a hundred years. Who knows if you ever get there or not. Whatever you need to do, you need to do it now. And do it with a sense of urgency. And if you all have long lives, great. That means instead of 100,000, we'll support 200,000. A million. Who knows? But at least you'll get closer to that goal if you start now with an urgency, right? Which is where I think most of us are not living that life in urgency. We're living our life. We have a lot of time. But we're all a ticking time bomb. We just don't know when we're going to explode. 
we're all going to explode. No one gets out of here alive. <laughs> That's true, right? Which is a blessing because I don't think I, would have, I want to have a 300 years old life because I'm going to be super depressed at that point. So it's a blessing that it ends, but it's also a curse if you don't make the life count because that is not going to be very helpful. Let me tell you the other reason I like to ask these questions is because yeah. like I can, because I've been through it. So I can ask True. And I consider it the greatest sign of respect to be genuinely interested in a person's life and the hard things that they've gone through. Like that is how you display respect for an individual. To Correct. genuinely think of them, dedicate that time of your life to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, learn about them and like, and talk about these important moments in their life because most people are too afraid to ask questions like that. Yeah, man. Either afraid or they don't think it's important or they don't have the time or because their life is too busy or whatever. Inappropriate to ask. They think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I don't want to remind Saket of his mother's passing away. It's actually, no, it's beautiful to put me back in that time because I want to remember that time. That was a very powerful time. It was a life-altering time for me. Yes, it's always emotional to think about it, but it's not like I'm not remembering her every single day. I do, which is how I pay my respect to her, but not being sad about it. Well, we got one more question, John. Otherwise, you know, I told you it's going to be a two-hour session and it's almost there, one fifteen. So one last question is going to be more around, and I think you, knowing you, you would have thought about this question sometime. Where should humanity migrate towards? What is your perspective? Where should humanity migrate towards? Wow, that's a great, woof. That's a great question. Well, I mean, we're hurtling through space on a rock and like eventually that rock is going to be sucked into the sun. And so like, that's a long way out. Okay. Let's be yeah. clear. But there's a lot of things that can happen in, in the interim. And it's just stupid. When you think about the forces of nature that are allied against us, and then for us to be fighting with each other, so freaking stupid. Yeah. So stupid. Then this is one of those like, I went to Lewis and Clark College, like a super like hippy dippy school. You know what I mean? I'm not hippy dippy, but like, there's an element of like, why can't we step back and look at this and be like, we're all in this thing together. Like, right. let's figure out some place to go. You know what I mean? Or like, take care of this place. Yeah. Let's, you know what I mean? Like, let's take care of this place. I, again, I'm not spiritual, but like, if I believe that God made this place, I mean, I would be like picking up everything. <laughs> like, Correct. Literal Correct. Ground, you know? Correct. We're, we live very cleanly and very simply. And so it's like, I think we need to take care of this place, whatever that means. Like we need to let this, because this is the only thing we got right now. Yeah. And then, find another place to go and then quit spending our time and our money and lives and resources on like Russia invading Ukraine. What's the point of that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's power, man. It's all about power. It's all about about power. power. We all know that it's really the fight of the resources, right? The next currency, if it's not dollar, whatever the hell it is. Underlying promise humans, humans. It's like with bank running banks, you're greedy. You make the wrong decisions for the wrong reasons. You're selfish. It's like, that's just who we are. That's just part of our condition. So yeah, well, John, this has been such an exciting conversation, man. I really appreciate it. Didn't feel like I had known you forever. So I appreciate that. I think you send the right message. Keep doing an amazing work, man. John, if somebody wants to learn about you, where can they find you? Yes, they can find me on Twitter. Max build on banks is kind of the first place. And then I have a sub stack. That's like really, really high quality bank content that I pull from like relationships with all the top bankers and stuff. It's expensive, but it's the best out there, I believe. Of course, I'm biased. So that's where you can find me. But the other thing I would say that I showed you these earlier is that I do these like these art type of things where I take these really complicated, big concepts and I reduce them to these like kind of attractive pieces of art. Mm-hmm. It's a new thing. Like I really feel like for the first time in my life, professional life, I'm really doing something original. 
If you have an office with any empty space and you have any interest in finance, come look me up on Twitter or wherever and take a look at this stuff. It's kind of cool. It's different and cool stuff. So That's awesome. So we can find you on Twitter and we can find you in Substack. So if somebody's interested in these artwork that we can see right behind your head there on your background wall, can they find information about that on Twitter? They can find it on Twitter or they can also email me, john, J-O-H-N dot Maxfield, M-A-X-F-I-E-L-D at maxfieldonbanks.com. John dot Maxfield at maxfieldonbanks.com. Perfect. That's right. We'll make sure that's included in the show notes below to make sure that there's no spelling mistakes there. But appreciate that, John. Thank you again for coming on the show, buddy. You're the best. Take care, buddy. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.